welcome to the very first edition of Sportsish, where in each episode we'll take an in-depth look at one of the fascinating elements surrounding professional sports. I'm your host, Chad Shanks, and from my time working in marketing in the NBA, I got to see firsthand how some of the off-court aspects could be at times more interesting than anything that happened on the court. So I'm going to recruit some experts who can provide an insider's look at everything you love about sports that has nothing to do with the games themselves. From bobbleheads and uniforms to mascots, superfans, and so much more, including this episode's look at what it was like to run a team's social media account during the rise of NBA Twitter. So, without further ado, let's start the show. By nearly every standard, my first night on the job was forgettable. Sure, I'll never forget the electricity in the air that I'd eventually come to relish every time I walked into the arena on game night. But as for the work itself, eh. The Houston Rockets hired me to execute their email marketing campaigns coming out of the 2011 NBA lockout, and as a little side gig, they wanted me to run their Facebook and Twitter accounts because, as they later admitted, literally no one else wanted to do it. For my first game on duty, my boss gave me an iPad that was logged into the accounts and had me sit with the other staff members in unsold seats at the top of the club section. What do I say, I asked, suddenly frozen by the newish-looking Twitter app glowing between my hands. Just update the score for people who can't watch the game on TV, he said. That's it? That's it. And that's what I did. I slowly typed out the score at the end of the first quarter, listed who had the most points at the time, and held it up for approval before mashing that blue button that made my words visible to the world. I did that a few more times and called it a night, and that was it. Apart from the personal significance that was my first game as an employee for the team I grew up loving, there really wasn't anything memorable about my first night whatsoever. I tweeted some stuff on an NBA team's Twitter account, and no one really cared. Fast forward a little over three years, and my last night on the job was a little different, to say the least. People cared about what I tweeted that night. A lot of people. In three years, I had gone from posting benign score updates to thinking it was a good idea that upon eliminating the Dallas Mavericks from the playoffs to tweet on the Rockets' official team account, a horse emoji and a gun emoji next to each other with the caption, shh, just close your eyes, it will all be over soon. Yeah, I know. So things had changed somewhere along the way, not just in the fact that the content itself was wildly different but also in the fact that a tweet made international news and my subsequent firing because of it made even more. For a few days afterwards, I had reporters showing up my house unannounced, TV and radio shows inundating with interview requests, and even comedians talking about me. If you go back in time and find me on that first night on the job and tell me that in three years Seth Meyers would be defending me on late night because of something I tweeted, I would have called you a damn liar. Because on my first day... No one cared about what an NBA team account tweeted. On what became my last day, a lot of people cared. So what happened? How did NBA team social media accounts go from being a boring sideshow to something that can get international attention? Now, I should point out that team social media has grown in importance across all sports and in every league, major and minor, and across all platforms from Facebook to Instagram and even Snapchat and who knows what else. But NBA Twitter is a full-blown phenomenon. 
So much so that I can say the phrase NBA Twitter and certain people know exactly what I mean. Hell, you can even use the hashtag NBA Twitter on Twitter and get some of those automatic little emojis added to the end. It's simply on another level than the other American leagues. While worldwide soccer is still king in terms of total social audience, the NBA leads in followers despite not having the monster ratings of, say, the NFL. While the NFL still pulls in TV numbers, the official NBA account has nearly 3 million more followers than the official NFL account, with MLB and NHL at a fraction of that. In fact, the top U.S. team in terms of followers, the Los Angeles Lakers, has more followers than the NHL account and is within a million of the MLB account, their entire league account. When I started for the Rockets, their Twitter account had roughly 30,000 followers, if I remember correctly. But today, they're around 2.5 million. Even if a portion of those are bots, saying the audience has exploded is quite the understatement, and the NBA has truly embraced it. In a 2016 interview with New Republic, the NBA's senior president of digital media, Melissa Rosenthal-Brenner, was asked how central Twitter had become to the league's marketing and communication strategy, and her first response was, and I quote, Twitter and social media are so important to the NBA that we added the at NBA handle to the official Spalding game ball at the beginning of the 2014-15 season, end quote. So NBA Twitter is literally a part of the actual ball itself. It doesn't get more ingrained than that. On the other end of the spectrum, in 2016, the NFL said it would fine its own team's social media accounts for posting video highlights or GIFs during games for fear of it hurting TV ratings. While the Browns and Eagles accounts responded brilliantly by posting clips of the old-timey electric football game to represent the plays they were now forbidden to post, that type of personality from team accounts there isn't nearly as prevalent as it is in the NBA where team accounts run the gamut from slightly cheeky to downright hilarious. But as my first day of the job illustrated, that wasn't always the case. So, how did team accounts go from irrelevant to the point where they're often called the voice of the fans? NBA Twitter was really born out of the 2011 NBA lockout. Sure, teams had Twitter accounts before then. In fact, a CNBC report identifies the Sacramento Kings as being the first professional sports team in the U.S. to join Twitter when they created their account in 2007. But the lockout provided teams an excuse to shuffle staff and rearrange priorities, and out of that came previously non-existent social media positions. During this time, lifelong Phoenix Suns fan Greg Esposito caught the team's eye with his radio work and a local sports website he started with his college roommate. Espo, as the Phoenix faithful would come to know him, dove headfirst into a team's social media account job where the rule book had yet to be written. Well, that, that was the beauty of it, though. It was kind of the Wild West because when in that time, the, the conventional social post was Here's a link to something that was written. There's no photo. There's no creativity. Uh, it's either a press release or something that if you were lucky enough to have a guy that wrote on your website, here's the link to that. And that was really all social media was back then. So we at that time, you come in with a blank slate and and it was exciting. Now, I'm, I'm not going to say everything we tried was great or that... Uh, 
there weren't a lot of failures, but that was the beauty in it. You could fail and nobody really paid a lot of attention at the time. Like, like literally it was, I don't even think higher ups at the team knew what the hell I was doing. They were just like, yeah, yeah, sure. If you need it, hire the guy. And it was, it was very, it was a very bizarre time because you pretty much could get away with, with a lot of things because there wasn't this scrutiny. There weren't, these eyes and but with the lack of scrutiny came the freedom to be creative for espo he saw how the early attempts to break that mold got a better reaction from fans than just telling them to read a press release on their site they orchestrated an online tournament of the greatest individual seasons in sun's history and promoted it through social something that seems rather mundane now but was really outside the box at the time as a fan himself, Espo knew the best way to engage with fans was to talk to them as a fan. I just found the best way to treat things was take the mentality that the Count was the biggest fan you knew, interact with fans like they were fans, talk on that level with them. And I mean, this was pre-video. There wasn't a lot of video that you could do. And really, there wasn't a lot of visual that people were pushing at the time. So it was it was about being witty, connecting with fans, and and trying to create these things that fans would like, and and I I I was lucky I had the leg up because I was one of them. I was probably growing up the biggest Suns fan I knew, so I had the chance to just use what I would likely be talking with with my friends about the Suns. Other teams were also embracing this approach, and a few started to separate themselves from the pack. But as with any new and unusual approach to tech, it takes some time for everyone to get used to it. But even the good ones had their difficulties explaining to their organization why they were all of a sudden cracking jokes under the team's account. Among the very best in those days were the Atlanta Hawks, who gained acclaim thanks to the innovative approach from Jared Wilson, a Chicago native who ran digital for a TV station in Colorado before getting the keys to the Hawks' social accounts. Yeah, um, you know, it came about, I, I think... Uh, the, my boss at the time who hired me, uh, I think we were really on the same page in terms of what we wanted Atlanta Hawks social to be. And, and we were on the same page. You know, we, we wanted this to be a, a fan-friendly, kind of conversational, informal, so, sometimes witty, sometimes cheeky type of voice. And we wanted it to sound like it was the voice of a Hawks fan. And that's kind of the way we went. Um, you know, we, we didn't want it to sound corporate. We didn't want it to sound PR. We didn't want to be pushing promotional messages all day. And, uh, you know, I think part of the reason I got the job is because the two of us connected in my interview about, uh, you know, this is what we want to build. Um, so, you know, when we started doing some of that stuff, I, I think it took a while for the organization to get used to the kind of messaging we were putting out there, in particular the tone we were using. Um, there was some kind of, internal scuffle, uh, as you can imagine. Um, you know, there's, there's just, there's some people who, uh, wanted social and, and felt social should behave a certain way and be portrayed in a certain way. And that it reflected the brand a certain way. And then there's people who, you know, thought, thought that it was a good thing, what we were doing and that we were, um, building up the brand in a positive way with what we were doing. The Hawks did small things like adding an additional W to their name after each win during a 19 game winning streak resulting in a perfectly absurd ha 
Hawks on top of everything tweeted in that span. In addition, while other teams put out boilerplate content hyping the release of their schedule, they posted all 82 matchups using only emojis. They even expanded to live stream a Madden NFL game that utilized Hawks players as a customized character on the Atlanta Falcons in the year that they went to the Super Bowl. While the Falcons ultimately didn't win the game, the Hawks walked away with millions of views for their efforts. Yet even with all the well-deserved accolades, not every shot went in and Wilson found himself in hot water a few times. Yeah, um, you know, I think there were two things that stand out to me from early in, in the process. Um, one of them was we actually, uh, Tony Romo had thrown an interception to lose a game on a, on a Sunday. Uh, the day before, Al Horford, who was on our team at the time, had hit a game winner to beat Dallas, actually, ironically. So we, you know, after Tony Romo threw his interception, and you know, one of the things we want to do, we always want to be topical and relevant where it makes sense. We don't want to force it, but if an opportunity comes along to, to be a part of a conversation that's natural and organic, you know, we want to take advantage of it. So, um, you know, to promote Horford's game winner, we, we posted a photo of, of Horford's shot and said, if Tony Romo needs advice on how to handle clutch situations, we know a guy. Uh, and, and that one didn't go over too well, particularly with our, our basketball operations department who always, you know, preached, you know, we wanted to be humble and uh, we, we don't want to gloat over victories and, and such. The other example was a, a kind of a legal one, actually, which wasn't, you know, I, I wasn't aware of it at the time, but um, the year that, Lance Stevenson blew in LeBron James' ear uh, during the playoffs. Uh, it actually, the night that it happened was the night before Al Horford's birthday. And we always post a birthday graphic wishing our players happy birthday, as most sports teams do. Uh, so we posted one the next day of, of Al Horford. Um, you know, it said happy birthday, you know, join us in wishing Al Horford a happy birthday. And we actually had Lance Stevenson, we, we cropped out the kind of the stance of him blowing in LeBron's ear. We actually had him blowing out Al Horford's birthday candles. Um, and, you know, we thought it was good, great at the time. I, th I think where we got in a little bit of trouble with that one, if I remember right, was Lance Stevenson was set to be a free agent. And because it was the Eastern Conference Finals, uh, Indiana against uh, Miami at the time, I think it was, um, the Hawks were out, so we could not actually discuss free agents. It was kind of, it was an NBA rule that, any mention of a free agent on social media was considered contact and therefore could be considered tampering, which would lead to a violation and all that stuff. So that was a, a good lesson for us from a legal standpoint that we can't mess with any of that stuff. So, you know, for, for one reason or another, you know, we've had a couple things that, you know, we've, we've had to kind of learn as, you know, by trial by fire, so to speak. So on the one hand, you have rogue tweeters stomping on league norms all in the name of retweets. On the other hand, it was working. Engagement numbers were up across the league and teams were beginning to get national media coverage for their work in the emerging digital space. But as a result, the men and women running these accounts were now expected to show personality and be funny every once in a while, which in and of itself is towing a dangerous line. One we are expected to walk right up to it, but not cross it. And it's not always apparent where that line even is. Even posts with the best of intentions can majorly backfire, as Espo and the Suns found out. I almost got fired for a 9-11 post that wound up on Keith Oberman's show, and uh, 
and it was completely innocuous. It was just a bad choice of photos, and uh, that was run through like six people before I actually sent it. And they wanted the caption was just hashtag never forget, which well, you know I was like, we can't do anything. We can't put anything that's cutesy or anything. We'll get hammered. And the photo that they wanted me to use was the our mascot, the gorilla, in fatigues from one of our military appreciation nights, and. I think there may have been in like the back corners some pyrotechnics or something. I'm like, and it was just, it was stupid. Like, and I ran it, like, I had like three photos and I'm like, I think we should use this one with the flag. And, and other people were like, no, use the gorilla one. And I'm like, okay. And I ran it through like six people and put it out there and we just got killed. Like, I went to a meeting and was gone away from the computer for an hour. I get back and uh, apparently the world had, uh, come to an end uh, basically in the way everybody wanted to was looking at it and I, it was i thought for sure i was going to lose my job and the only only reason i think i didn't was the vice president or the senior vice president we reported to her husband was a uh, ex-military uh, a first responder and he looked at it and he said i don't have any problem with this it, you know uh, maybe it was maybe it was a poor choice in photo, but it wasn't malicious. Like, there's no reason this guy should should lose his job. And I actually offered to resign because that was how embarrassing it was. And uh, so, so yeah, we all we all had those moments. While they were few and far between, there were a few instances that highlighted what can happen when tweeting goes wrong. I say, gazing directly into a mirror. And the fear of being next was enough to encourage some teams to be a little more cautious. The Sacramento Kings were not one of those teams. They decided instead to step it up a notch. And behind that notch stepping was current Timberwolves senior digital content manager Shabazz Khan, who during his stay in Sacramento had an idea for how they should utilize the letter L. Um, it, it all started that night because um, I inquired whether we'd be able to called the Lakers the Acres for the last part of the game because we were winning by 20 or 30, I want to say. And uh, the reason why was because at the end of the game, I was going to say, well, we're calling them the Acres because we're about to give them an L. And it was kind of hesitant at first. Um, there wasn't necessarily, it hadn't been done um, from that perspective. And so they were kind of hesitant on, on kind of to toying with that line. Uh, but, you know, my mentality was always and, and has always been pushing the boundaries and um, creating conversation because at the end of the day, from a social perspective, our, our job is to create conversation. And so when we started doing that, um, you know, it all started that night. And from then on, they, they kind of saw in 2015, this, this was, you know, we got, I want to say 4,000 or 3,000 retweets in under an hour. And that was kind of number one tweet all time um, at the time. And they're like, all right, let's embrace this. So from then on, you know, our, our department, um, and, and myself uh, were given every opportunity and given the green light to pretty much pitch any idea, and I would rarely hear a no. And run with that green light they did, finding increasingly clever ways to Photoshop in L's and graphics targeted at their recently defeated opponents, few th though they may have been. However, it was one highly unlikely W against Cleveland that led to the L heard around the world, when they posted a graphic featuring the letter styled like the Cavaliers logo, complete with their sword and the caption, this one's for the land. I saw it when it was being shared around by national news outlets and thought to myself immediately, someone's getting fired for this. So, you know, I, I, I didn't really 
think any anything of it. Uh, but you know, uh, obviously that didn't necessarily sit well with with everybody. Um, so, you know, there was conversations had between our department and leaders on our business side and um, folks that um, necessarily weren't um, fond of it. But essentially, we came to the conclusion that you know uh, we we created the conversation that we we wanted to. Um, we we were aware of of what the response might be. That being said, we didn't think it was going to be um, as picked up as it was, um, you know, not to the tune of 40,000 retweets. Luckily, no one at the Kings lost their job over it. But their epic trolling did set the table for the NBA to ultimately intervene and issue a memo trying to rein in team accounts, all thanks to a firestorm started by the Portland Trailblazers. Chris Coivisto, who originally worked in Portland's PR department before transitioning to digital, was running the team's account during a game against Memphis when Grizzlies forward Chandler Parsons attempted a rather unfortunate three-pointer. Uh, and then the one that uh, was kind of, uh, I guess, you know, one of the, the more publicized ones was uh, Chandler Parsons shot an air ball. Um, and we, cu- we cut a gif of that, and um, I put it up and, and just said, you know, to be fair, the, the NBA three-point line is really far away from the basket. Just, you know, that's something that we commonly do is was troll players and teams and, and, and in a playful, a playful way. Um, but after the game, Chandler responded and said, um, have fun in the lottery, because um, we had a bad record at the time and they had a better record. Um, and CJ McCollum responded right away, like while I was texting with our, our CMO and our president, like, yo, what should I do? Um, and CJ said, we hit the lottery not signing you as a free agent. Um, and Twitter exploded, man. Twitter went crazy. Uh, it got picked up everywhere. And um, anyway, long story short, the next week, the NBA came out with a new social media policy um, for teams not to disparage or tweet at uh, other teams or players of other teams um, moving forward. So my boss said, uh, or I guess our, our CMO, Dwayne, said that, uh, you know, that's the, the Chris Coivisto rule was uh, you can't, can't talk trash, trash to players anymore. And that, uh, that was kind of a fun moment. For most teams, that would have been the end of it. The league had spoken and the fun, at least the fun at others' expense, had to stop. But not for Shabazz and the Kings, who teamed with Atlanta to take a slightly different approach in their very first game after the memo went out. But that actually, um, you know, spurred one of my favorite um, ideas that we ever had at Kings Digital when I was there. And um, I reached out to Jared Wilson and um, we talked about doing the complete opposite and being extremely nice to each other. And so the entire next game after that memo came out. Um, King's Twitter and Hawk's Twitter, if you go back, were over the top nice and it got all kinds of love. Um, and it was one of my favorite nights to tweet, um, for sure. Despite the King's and Hawk's subversion, it was the biggest and most public instance to date of the league finally stepping in to tell team accounts to simmer down a bit. What had been handled on a team-by-team basis behind closed doors was now outlined in an official league memo. And it's ironic that the Trailblazers were the ones to spark it since the team's chief marketing officer, whom Chris mentioned a second ago, is kind of to blame for everything that is NBA Twitter. Now, while the NBA really brought the snarky, sassy team Twitter account into the mainstream, the first team to really take that approach was in the NHL. The Los Angeles Kings, in many ways, are the godfathers of the modern team account. 
They were the first to gain attention for adding personality to their tweets, but more importantly, for being really, really good at it. In early 2012, when NBA teams were still crawling out of the scores and stats primordial ooze, the Kings, while in town to play the Devils, tweeted, and I quote, Aside from fist pumping, what else is there to do in New Jersey? End quote. One of the people spearheading this approach was Dwayne Hankins, who eventually became Chris Coivisto's boss in Portland. Yeah, he was with him at the, the Kings and uh, some of those AEG properties. So uh, Dwayne's story is, uh, you know, if you Google, uh, you know, LA Kings 2012, uh, they were the first team uh, in all of sports to really... Um, take a different approach on social and kind of uh, talk trash and have, you know, call people out. And I guess troll is the best way to summarize it. Um, so they did a really good job. They were featured in every single publication possible because nobody knew about uh, this style or this approach. And they were in the Stanley Cup uh, playoffs. So a lot of eyeballs. But eventually, uh, two years later, fast forward, he's our VP of marketing. So he already has that built in um, mindset and that that strategy uh, of really moving the needle. Dwayne also had a background in PR, working with a few minor league teams in the Midwest before taking a job with the MLB's Miami Marlins. He shifted into publications and designs with the NHL's Minnesota Wild, where he first saw the potential for using social media as a brand-building tool. But the Wild weren't as excited about his plans as the Kings ultimately were. As I continued with the organization, we started thinking differently about how we were going to do digital, and at that time, Teams were just starting to use their websites for content purposes um, outside of just selling tickets. And that was the time that Facebook and Twitter became tools for teams to use. And so proposing all these ideas, um, at first we had you know, PR running social media. And then uh, as I started following all the other teams and all the other sports on social media, I saw that there was an opportunity for it to live within the marketing department because in my mind, uh, we just sort of handed it to PR without asking any questions, not just us, but I think all teams did. And it was a way that you could really represent a, a brand's voice in a new way that, that hadn't existed before. And we thought about it the same way, or I thought about it the same way that you think about game operations. When you're inside the arena, the game operations isn't playing it straight. Game operations is, is sort of getting fans excited for the team, and it's a bit one-sided in its approach. And we thought we could do this as well with social media, and we especially th thought there was an opportunity because no other teams were doing this. Um, and I, we proposed, you know, our team proposed that idea in Minnesota, but, but I think there was, um, there was more excitement about it from the LA Kings. And so when I started to interview with them and brought up these ideas, they got really excited about them all the way through. Once Dwayne joined the Kings and teamed up with Pat Donahue, they did the impossible. They got exposure for a hockey team in Los Angeles. And in LA, it was it was a challenging market if you're the if you're a, if you're a hockey team in Southern California because at the time the Kings hadn't won any championships, and and it was it was there was a ton of competition from the USC and UCLA and the Dodgers and the Lakers and the Clippers and the Angels in some respects. So if the Kings were going to stand out, there was going to have to be a way that they were going to do that, and so you know, these ideas really resonated. And we had been doing it this way for a while. I hired um, Pat Donahue, who, who now oversees all that for the Kings and does a phenomenal job. Uh, 
And so we, we, you know, we sort of worked together and did all this, and, and people started to notice it around the time we made the playoffs because Pat sent you know a famous tweet at the time about um, after we beat the Vancouver Canucks in the first game, which was um, to everyone outside of British Columbia, you're welcome. And the concept there was that we heard from all the fans from all the other Canadian teams who just didn't like the Canucks, and so Pat thought that was the perfect. Thing to say, and you know, kind of went from there. And then obviously got lucky because the team played really well and dominated. And you know, we had found that voice, and we were doing it that way, and it was great. It's obvious that Hankins and his team really understood from the beginning what would make a team's Twitter account great, even if it took the rest of us a while to catch up. The way that we I positioned it at the time was um, that social media was not about talking to fans it was about talking with fans and that concept seems very easy to understand now but at the time the people that were running these things didn't quite understand how the how it worked and Dwayne didn't rest on his laurels when he headed north and jumped into a leadership role for the blazers digital department which quickly established itself as among the best in the league in fact, Complex.com has been ranking the best NBA team Twitter accounts for the last three years, thanks to some insight from Max Rappaport, who was formerly at the helm of the great Philadelphia 76ers account. For three years straight, they've placed Portland in their number one spot. And who can really argue with it when they post brilliance like a side-by-side -side gif of two of their players swiping the ball away from driving opponents with the caption, Portland, known for stripping. To fully appreciate that tweet, you had to know unofficial basketball terminology as well as the industry for which their city has the most per capita in the United States. It's probably my favorite tweet that I've ever seen from an NBA team account. But it's only fitting that Dwayne is on hand to see NBA Twitter take the next step in its evolution. He helped pave the way for the age of engagement where teams threw caution to the wind in an all-out attempt to capture eyeballs with unique and clever content. And it worked. So now comes the next phase. Legitimacy. The NBA, much like other leagues, is in many ways not so much a sports league as it is an advertising medium. To prove that, I point to you to the 2011 slam dunk competition, which, by the way, already had Sprite tagged on as the official naming sponsor. But the league took corporate synergy to the next level when Blake Griffin took home the title after jumping over the hood of a Kia Optima, the official car of the NBA. To the surprise of no one, Griffin later admitted on the Pardon My Take podcast that his original idea was to jump over a convertible, but that the NBA forced him to use their sponsor's vehicle. Now, this is one of the most glaring examples of co-opting the product to hawk goods, but watch any game, go into any arena, or now even buy a jersey and you'll be inundated with ads. It's annoying, sure, but at this point, it's an understood part of the business that, to be fair, is mostly handled really well. But given its innocuous rise, in the early days, NBA social media was mostly ignored when it came to the sponsorship elements that covered nearly every other aspect of the league. For guys like Espo, it meant the freedom to create content without corporate restraint. Yeah, you know, first few years, there wasn't much because marketing partnerships uh, uh, who handled all the sales probably looked at us as the little annoying stuff that nobody gave a crap about. And by year three, it was, oh, we can actually make money off of this. But uh, the problem was it lacked creativity. It lacked heart. It was just uh, 
trying to do the same conventional, here's some ad copy, throw it out there with an image that, uh, that they do on TV or a radio spot. And that was the side that never understood or fully grasped not only the power of digital, but the importance of actually being human and tying it uh, to stuff that fans actually gave a crap about. But there is a way to marry content with sponsorship where it does not violate what fans want. It does not make them feel uh, just off put by it. And it doesn't make the person who's pressing send feel dirty about it. It wasn't the most natural union at first, seeing how Twitter was one of the few places you could go at the time and not be barraged with ads. But money ruins everything if you're not the one directly receiving it. So when teams realized how many eyeballs were on their social media accounts, they naturally moved to monetize. And they were getting a lot of eyeballs. According to a March 2017 CNBC article, sports teams now get more exposure via social media than they do on TV. And since buying space on social media is still significantly cheaper than TV time, sponsors are naturally gravitating towards it. And for those who prioritize the fans' digital experience, nothing was scarier than having to work sponsors into it. There's a point where we counted and we kept track of it. Uh, the Suns over, I think it was three seasons, had sent the most sponsored posts of anybody in the NBA. And if you want to kill, if you want to kill engagement on social media, that's one hell of a way to do it uh, is by just jamming ads down people's throats. And, uh, and, sponsorship had a lot of power and it's tough. You got to find that balance. And some teams do it really, really, really well, but not all teams figure out how to do that. And it can be a death knell for your entire social media marketing because you just don't know, you know, exactly how much your fans start to despise it and start to ignore your accounts. If it's just, here's an offer you never asked for, here's a blatant ad for, a carpet cleaning company or you know just these things that didn't make a lot of sense for basketball fans toward the end of my tenure with the rockets sponsored posts were an increasingly frequent part of my duties but apart from the annoyance at having them slightly lower my overall engagement numbers it wasn't that bad but when i peruse today all i freaking see from team accounts are sponsored posts Everything has a sponsor tag, the starting lineups, the score updates, the photo of the night. And that's not even getting into the blatant ads that just say, get 50% off Papa John's if we win on Tuesday. So I did a very unscientific study. I randomly chose the Hawks account, mostly because I knew they've been traditionally good at integrating sponsors and the like. And I went through their 200 most recent tweets, excluding retweets. Again, this is not scientific, not a representative sample. Anything could have skewed the numbers based on the time I was browsing, but what I found still surprised me. Of those 200 tweets, 62 of them had sponsors mentioned in some way, either in the caption text on a graphic or tagged in the, spe the special sponsorship identification section Twitter now has. It came up to 31% of the tweets were sponsored in some way. I checked their Instagram to see if it was the same, used the same methodology, and found 44% of the posts had some sort of sponsorship element. So, because I'm an ass, I put Jared Wilson on the spot and asked him about it. No, it's an absolutely valid concern. And, um, you know, those numbers, while they are staggering, are, are not, I'm not surprised to hear them because it does seem like we, 
you know, we, we serve sponsors and advertisers a lot more than we serve ourselves. Um, but yeah, you know, it's frustrating. Uh, it's not necessarily the, the content, but the fact that, you know, everything has to be labeled with, with a sponsor or with a logo or whatever. Um, you know, I, I've been, I've always been of the opinion that, that fewer is better, um, less is more. And, you know, unfortunately we very much look at it as a, you know, by post model with, with the Hawks. And I think, uh, you know, slowly we are transitioning to kind of a by impression model where we, we value stuff based on impressions, but, you know, for, for large chunks of deals that have been in place for a number of years and have multi-year deals, uh, you know, that, that's just kind of how it is. Like, oh, you get X number of posts per week or, uh, per month. And that's how, you know, people think that, oh, the more posts, the, the more exposure when in reality, especially with algorithms on social these days, it's often more posts is less exposure. Everything about turning team accounts into advertising machines seems antithetical to what made NBA Twitter great in the first place. If it goes from valuing engagement to valuing paid placement and that eats up valuable time, what is left for creativity and talking with fans? Is the proliferation of sponsorship going to be NBA Twitter's jump the hood moment? Well, if you ask Dwayne Hankins, the godfather, everything we love about NBA Twitter was intended to sell sponsorships. So in LA, we were the kings. So the Lakers had millions of followers and the Dodgers had millions of followers and we didn't. And so when we had sponsorship conversations, they were saying, well, you guys don't have the followers. And we would say, let's go a level deeper and show you what our engagement is because our engagement tops these teams. And so we were measuring engagement while everyone else was measuring followers. And so we were putting content out that we wanted people to engage with. And so that the way to win that argument with with staff and with folks that didn't understand the, the, the platform was to show them a set of metrics that rewarded that type of behavior. It's a business. The players say that all the time when they get traded or released. Hey, it's a business. And at the end of the day, everything the team does is about making money. And if social media doesn't generate some level of revenue, they'd cut it out completely. Why deal with all the potential headaches if it doesn't help the bottom line? Luckily, it has been financially lucrative, and very much so for the teams that have learned to do it well. A Forbes article from February of this year says the Warriors switched to an impression-based model with their partners and saw digital revenue go up 300%. Not like they need anything else to go their way in Golden State. But Portland has seen it too. And not just in money they receive selling posts to partners, which has tripled in Dwayne's time with the team, but also from how they use social media themselves to generate revenue, even if the results aren't as flashy as a meme that gets thousands of retweets or a gift that upsets Chandler Parsons. Facebook and Instagram, there's so much power in their ad platform, and they've definitely dialed in and figured it out and pushed it. So there's so much opportunity for revenue generation on those platforms. But it's so hard to explain that to people that work in social media because the instant gratification that they get from the Twitter mentions, right? I mean, it's so hard to get people to understand the value of the other pieces of social media because it doesn't come with the instant, instant gratification dopamine hits that exist on Twitter. Maybe some fans won't like it if their favorite team account stops being as funny as it used to be and starts sharing more sponsored content. They'll probably send some nasty replies, or even worse, they'll unfollow. 
But despite some early bumps, team digital and sponsorship departments are working with clients to get more creative with sponsored content in the same way they got creative with all content six, seven years ago. And even though I gave Jared Wilson a hard time about it, it's infinitely better for him and for all social media managers to be able to show what they do is a legitimate moneymaker. Right now, it's difficult for any organization to put that engagement and that kind of brand above revenue. And, you know, the Hawks are, are a very revenue-driven organization by nature, as, you know, obviously most companies are, not just sports, but all companies. So, um, you know, being able to show that ROI, I say, is, you know, far superior in terms of, of what they value, you know, as opposed to, you know, this post got, you know, 50,000 likes or, you know, 30,000 shares or whatever. That, you know, that, that stuff is great. And it's great to get a hit in the media every once in a while for stuff like that. But uh, no, I would say that, that the Hawks are very much a, uh, you know, how does this help drive the, the overall business? And how does this help, uh, you know, help us move tickets and help us, you know, sell sponsorships and all that. That's, that's definitely the main focus. While turning a profit via tweets shone a light on the valuable work the social media team does internally, the general public still doesn't seem to understand what exactly it is they do. For example, Julie Fayer is part of the Warriors digital team. Her personal Twitter bio reads simply, not an intern. For those who've run a team account, it needs no explanation. For those who haven't, it's calling out the most common misconception they face. Even with increased media exposure and social media workforce that's expanding across industries, Shabazz still hears it all the time. Oh, I'm sure you still or, or may have gotten this, but you know the number one thing is that there there's an intern running every account, and all we do is tweet for a living, right? Like, yeah, is the intern thing still as big as it was yeah, no, it's, three, four years ago? Yeah, no, it's huge. I, you know, like, Reddit's one of my still favorite. Haven't caught on. No, yeah, Reddit's still one of my favorite um, websites, and you know, I'll go on NBA Reddit, and every every so often, you know, there'll be a there'll be a comment. I think. Some folks are getting a little bit more knowledgeable in terms of who's running each account now. So it's toned down a bit, but you'll still often see that, oh man, the intern, you know, messed up tonight or they, they should give this intern a raise. Like that, that's still there. In many respects, Espo, who was also not an intern, bore the responsibility of the whole organization on his back. I don't think people understood because you say, hey, I work in social media for team and like, oh, you just goof around all day. And it's like, well, no, I'm making a whole lot of decisions as the the voice and the face of a brand uh, in split seconds. So yeah, it's it's much tougher than you think. And I don't even think at the time, like I previously said, that the front office and and ownership and and everybody above you really understood that you were literally the voice of an entire organization and the world was seeing everything you were doing. I just, I don't think that really hit them until this stuff started gaining more attention. Of course, it wasn't just misconceptions from outsiders that made things difficult. While I only had an iPad on my first night, by my last, I carried with me a MacBook Pro, an iPhone, a professional quality camera with a Wi-Fi enabled SD card, a monopod, and all the accessories that they each required because Twitter and the others had grown into multimedia platforms, and teams were sharing photos, graphics, videos, animations, and all sorts of interactive content that required a lot more labor to produce. 
add the continued responsibility some had of maintaining the team website, handling event promotion on the arena side, email marketing, or just having to attend so many damn meetings, and the hours in an already long day disappear quickly. Even if someone is lucky enough to concentrate mostly on social and web content, like Shabazz did with the Kings, the added responsibilities still pile up. It's essentially two, three, sometimes four different positions because it's photography, it's video, it's writing, it's editing, and then all the social um, parts and, and the graphic design and content creation and creating content uh, calendars. Also, as NBA Twitter matured, so did the people who helped build it. As the 20-somethings who had nothing but time to devote to their craft began inching closer to their 30s and starting families, some harsh realities about the position started to set in. With more platforms and more types of content comes more things to monitor, because team social gurus not only plan, create, and post, but they have to examine how it's received and learn from each post, be it a huge hit or a colossal failure. But just like constantly checking your own personal social accounts to see who liked your photo or who shared your witty observation can quickly become an addiction, it's hard to fight that urge to constantly check the stream of mentions when you're running a team account, especially since those mentions can run into the tens of thousands and feature replies from actors, musicians, politicians, or even a pissed-off Chandler Parsons. For Espo, that inability to disconnect came with consequences. Yeah, no, I I never was able to put down the phone, and frankly, it put a strain on uh, on my marriage and and certain relationships because you became the guy that never was really uh, in the moment where you were. You weren't ever really fully paying attention to the rest of what was going on around you. And I still, I mean, people laugh, but it becomes kind of an addiction. You you kind of you you very much feel this pull to constantly be checking and what who's talking about what and is there an angle to get in on this conversation i mean it could have been i remember waking up in the middle of the night when i couldn't sleep while i was doing it and i the first thing i would do is grab my phone i'd go check everything like there's something wrong with that and you got to figure out a way uh, and i'm still working on this to this day figure out a way not to not to get sucked into that that much and with the appetite for content growing ever more ravenous, many social media managers began traveling to road games so that the exclusive, behind-the-scenes aspects that only they could provide didn't disappear on half the games. And before I start to sound like an ungrateful whiner, let me just say that traveling with an NBA team is as amazing as you'd imagine. Private planes, five-star hotels, getting to see amazing cities... It's incredible, and I and everyone who's ever been afforded that opportunity know how lucky we are to have those experiences. That being said, it's so freaking brutal. For guys like Chris in Portland, it even sped up his eventual departure. Um, they wanted the social person to travel 100% uh, this, this current season, so um, that helped. Like, There's no way I was going to do that. Um, it sounds awesome. It sounds cool. Um, but even just traveling a third of the year was like, man, some of those road trips where it's like you have an off day and you're staying in a nice hotel in a huge city, but you don't have the money of somebody who, you know, is on the team or, you know, that can actually enjoy this part of life. And you're just sitting in your hotel room and, uh, it's lonely, man. It sucks. Um, and I can't imagine doing it full time. So, uh, you know, like I, like we were saying, like the, it's a young kid's job and you know, the, the, the glamour and the sexiness wears off, um, 
you know, fairly quickly. Um, but yeah, it was, you know, there were several times where I had to miss uh, an event or, uh, you know, a thing at the school or drop off or pick up or whatever that, you know, you can't get those back. And, you know, it's part of the, it's a big part of the reason why I left uh, the industry is just, you know, you, you don't want to blink and all of a sudden your kids are, you know, in high school and you didn't see them because you were so selfishly consumed with your own career. Now, this isn't unique just to the social media people. There are several staff members required to travel who are away from their friends and family even more. For all team employees, your life is literally controlled by the NBA schedule. But for the people responsible for reporting on every activity, you're almost on call 24-7, 365, and there's no such thing as an off-season. Granted, there are people who are on call 24-7 for jobs with infinitely more taxing responsibilities than running a team's social media account. But whereas people are aware that doctors and first responders have to instantly drop their personal lives from duty calls, I doubt many know that the same can be said for the person tweeting for the Milwaukee Bucks. People who've never worked in sports, and even some who currently do, don't realize how much running a team social can just inflict stress upon your soul. Even someone who makes it look easy, like Jared Wilson does in Atlanta. This job takes a lot out of you. It's a lot of hours, and that's kind of the industry. That, that's sports, and um, you know, I think people don't really realize how many hours it takes in our position. Uh, so now it may not always be game night responsibilities at night, but um, there's a lot of nights where I go home and I, I flip the laptop open and I'm still working, whether it's um, you know continuing campaign management, scheduling, um, you know, writing up content plans for for future campaigns that we're working on, or thinking about kind of long-term series and stuff like that. And if you couple that with the misconception that since the players make millions and a hot dog in the arena costs $15, that the money trickles down to the guys and girls behind the keyboards, you'd be mistaken. No matter how much you love your job, which I think it's safe to say anyone who's ever been behind an NBA team account would have said at one point, when you calculate roughly how much you're making an hour and how little you see the people you love, it can make guys like Jared want to walk away from what is to many a dream job. Yeah, no, I, that, that's 100% part of it. I think there's just a, a level of, you know, not feeling like you're valued um, based on how many hours you work versus, versus your pay. Um, that, that was certainly part of it with me. I think I was ready for, um, you know, either more responsibility or, uh, more money or a, a better schedule, you know, one of the three and, you know, realizing that that wasn't going to happen in this position. Um, you know, I think it was the right time for me to step away and, you know, focus more on, on my health and, uh, and my soon to be family. Still, people really want to work for a sports team so much so that there are even entire sites and many industries built around making money off helping people find out about job postings with teams and claiming to give them a leg up on the competition. And yes, there are incredible perks to working for a team, but what most don't know going into it is that the odds are you won't work there for long. Even the just a general turnover in, in our staff and my time with the Suns uh, throughout the organization was which she was, I'd probably guess 75% of the organization turned over was there in my five years. And, you know, those, people are going to think you're exaggerating, but you're no, not I, like, I, I, I'm, I'm probably, yeah. I'm probably under the actual number of what it was. It, it, there's a very short shelf life. There's rare people that wind up being lifers, but there's, there's a short shelf life because 
as it has been was made very clear to me in my time there. If you don't want it, there's a very long line of people behind you. So what do you do then with a highly desirable job that is continuing to evolve and increase in importance, yet its high demands and the even higher profile it gives the people in it are making keeping top tier talent harder and harder to do? And replacing them is no longer a matter of just giving them the passwords and letting them go, since they now balance delicate relationships with the players and basketball staff, with managing an expanding docket of sponsor obligations, as well as the rapport they've built with fans. You simply can't sustain a level of quality and stability if the job is a revolving door. One way Hankins and others in the league are managing this is eliminating the idea of each team having a, quote, social person. You can't put the responsibility of being the voice of the organization on one person. You can't. So, um, and what I mean by that is you just need to have multiple people involved. You need to decide what your voice is going to be as an organization and then make sure that everyone understands that and, and does that voice. Because when I, you know, when I was with LA, it was the same thing. It was me and Pat and we had to do everything. And what's happened in the last five years, six years is that you know, now teams have to do mobile apps. Uh, now teams have to do um, <laughs> five, six different social media networks. They're also in charge of working with sponsorship to come up with the right activation. So, so it just can't be on one person anymore. Hankins is also pushing his team to adapt to the changing times and even move away from the social approach he helped define just a few years ago. So today, I don't think, because there's not that advantage any longer, because now you have all of the teams doing, not all, but most of the teams doing it this way where they now have personality and now they add snark. We actually don't want to do that anymore because there's no more advantage in that. Now it's just, now you're just stirring it up to stir it up, right? So I think it would be received differently because Twitter has become such a different place. Um, you know, you can, you can, you can think about every industry, whether it's sports, or the government, or you know, you name it. It's Twitter's become a very different place, and I don't think that if it were the way that it is now, we would have the same approach. There's no denying that Twitter has changed. It was never a representation of the best of humanity by any means, but social media managers now have to succeed in a realm where it's increasingly difficult to know what's real and what's fake, and a spreading plague of vitriol means that even the smallest missteps could be catastrophic. That increased level of scrutiny and responsibility is something that early NBA social managers like Espo now realize he never had to deal with on the same level. This new generation of people running the accounts, I think they have it tougher because not only do they have to, now do they have to juggle more, more properties. I mean, and, and video has become a much larger part of it, but there's much more scrutiny. There's much, uh, it's much tougher to build those relationships because now players want uh, all the good stuff for their own accounts. It's a tougher, it's a tough, tougher waters to navigate. We got lucky. We, we kind of made the rules. We kind of helped define what NBA social and NBA Twitter really was, but we also, uh, we also didn't have to deal with as much of the scrutiny and, and some of the different things that come now. So I'm grateful that that I worked in the time that I did and that I got to build the relationships uh, that I did. Uh, certainly miss it too, but uh, it's it's different now for sure. 
It really is incredible how much it's changed in such a relatively short period of time. And if that level of change is any indication, who knows what the job will look like in two, three, ten years from now, if it exists at all. Whatever the future may hold for the men and women running NBA team social media accounts, there's no denying they've become a vital asset to the league and an essential part of the modern fan experience, which I don't remember too many people foreseeing back in 2011-2012. And even with the admitted hardships that come with the job, those who have held it realize they were a part of something special. It is the most exhaustive, most exciting, most rewarding, most um, defeating. Uh, there's so many oxymorons to use to describe it that the, the ups and the downs uh, are equal. Yep. Uh, yeah, my, my favorite analogy is, is from Jason. and He said it's basically like building an airplane while you're in the sky. And that is exactly what I think about it. You know, I think it's it's a lot of a lot of power, a lot of spotlight. Um, it, it's a lot of fun. Um, you know, it's also it's also a lot of responsibility. It's 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 exciting, man. It's 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 really thrilling, and you know, during games and during events, like it's it's a lot of fun. And if you're if you like sports, it's definitely something that um, that will get you excited. Honestly, I wouldn't have trade I wouldn't trade those 5 years of my life for anything. It it was one of the craziest rides I've ever been on and we'll always look back fondly on it no matter what I wind up doing moving forward and some of the relationships I built uh are guys I still talk to and and, and women I still talk to to this day that because we experienced something that nobody uh, I don't think anybody will ever quite go through in the same way again. Uh, the the people that were there at the beginning of, in particular, NBA Twitter, we went on this crazy ride together. We we kind of grew up on that platform together and, and got to lay the foundation that other people ha- have built on since then. And there's a reason why people look at NBA Social and, in particular, NBA Twitter as uh, as the the best in all of sports and it was because we got to have fun with it that's it episode one in the books huge thank you to my guests greg esposito jared wilson chris coivisto Dwayne hankins and shabazz khan who has a new podcast about social media and sports called social on the sidelines I returned the favor and did an interview for them, so if you want to hear more about me getting fired for being a dumbass, do check that out. And if you want to hear more from my guests, I'm going to post each of their full interviews as supplemental episodes, so be sure to subscribe and check them out. Come back for episode two, where we'll discuss the surprisingly complicated process that is getting bottleheads and other plastic crap made so it can be given away at stadiums and arenas. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next Sports-ish.